Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. We are talking about the lead up to the Ted Bundy execution, which was probably the biggest execution in the history of true crime. Absolutely. And he was finally sentenced to death for the abduction of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, which was a girl leaving her middle school in Lake city florida and as soon as he was convicted automatically the commencement of a long appeals process does follow and bundy initiated a series of interviews speaking mostly in the third person at this point so he immediately starts doing media interviews and he wanted to avoid the stigma of a confession And this is when he began for the first time to divulge details of his crimes and thought processes. He recounted his career as a thief, confirming Elizabeth Cloffer's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance he ever owned. He later said the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. Possession provided to be an important motive for rape and murder as well. He later said sexual assault fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims. And at first, he killed his victims as a matter of expediency. And basically, it was to eliminate the possibility of being caught. This is why he initially started murdering, so he thought in his brain. But later... He said murder became part of the quote-unquote adventure. The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life and then the physical possession of the remains. So Bundy also confided in a special agent named William Hagmeyer of the FBI. And he said that Bundy possessed a deep, almost mystical satisfaction in murder. He said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes possession. They're a part of you. The victim becomes a part of you. And the two of you are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them have become sacred to you. And you will always be drawn back to them. Kind of sounds romantic, which is kind of up, but well, they I think romanticize it, it in their it, heads, absolutely. Where it's just like, oh, they take little mementos, that's why they take trophies. It's like, oh, something you know to remember you by. Like, yeah. they don't like, oh, I'll keep this locket. I mean, their satisfaction is more important than life, so that they can romanticize it. Like, oh, she's part of me forever. Like, yeah, she's probably better than the life she'd have. Yeah, Jesus. 
So wintertime is the most confusing time for your body. It's freezing outside, but you're all bundled up and you're running around doing errands. And somehow underneath it all, being in the frigid weather, you're sweating. But I've been able to keep it super fresh and clean with one of my favorite new sponsors, and that is Coconut Deodorant from Kopari. Kopari's Coconut Deodorant is aluminum-free, vegan, and doesn't contain silicones, sulfates, parabens, GMOs, or baking soda. And whether you've got sensitive skin or just don't want a bunch of questionable ingredients on your body, Kopari's deodorant offers a cleaner option that works just as well. It's formulated with plant-based actives like sage oil and coconut oil, so you stay fresh all day. And it goes on smooth and doesn't leave behind a sticky white residue like a lot of other deodorants do. And along with your original coconut scent, Kopari offers a fragrance-free version of their deodorant plus two new scents, Beach and Gardenia, that are available now. So if you want to try it out, go to koparibeauty.com slash first to make the safe switch today and save $5 off your first order. That's koparibeauty.com slash first. So Bundy told Hagmeyer that he considered himself to be a, quote, amateur and, quote, impulsive killer in his early years before moving into what he termed as his prime or predator phase. Again, which is why maybe he didn't really admit to all of his earlier murders. Um this implied that he began killing well before 1974, though he never explicitly admitted to doing so. And in July of 1984, guards found two hacksaw blades that Bundy had hidden in his jail cell. A steel bar in one of his cell's windows had been sawed completely through the top and the bottom, and it was glued back into the place with a homemade soap-based adhesive. He is like MacGyver over here. He is crafty. He's so He's crafty. like Father Yoda, like can do everything. Yeah, he really can. Yeah. Which is like, I mean... He could have been like Anything. an amazing man, like politician, he, yeah. lawyer, CEO. Well, that's what the, what's what one of the lawyer the uh, the judge says. The judge says in yeah, right. court he'd make says a heck he'd of a make lawyer. a heck of a lawyer, yeah. if it, you know. But it didn't work out that way. He said, "I would have loved to have you in 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 my courtroom." And yeah, he was he was very very competent and could have been super successful. Yeah. And you see this and like he wanted to be governor, you know, he wanted to be governor of the state of Washington. So, and you see that you know, if you read the the psychopath test by Ronson, he talks about how you know, the sociopaths and psychopaths, they they turn into maybe they don't become killers, but they become CEOs, they become politicians. Mm-hmm. And it's like he was going to go one of these ways. And he could and have he gone the way. other way and been Ta-da. super super successful. What a shit up. So several months after he MacGyvered this situation, uh, guards found an unauthorized mirror hidden in a cell and Bundy was again moved to a different cell because he's trying to finagle his well, way. Finally, out there. they're being vigilant because he if there's a way, even the most strange out of the box thinking way, he would have come up with it. If there escape. was like a tiny like inch long diameter hole, he'd somehow slither his way out 100%. of there. Bundy was attacked by a group of fellow death row inmates at one point, and though he denied having been assaulted, a number of the inmates confessed to the crime and, and characterized by one source as a gang rape. And in October of 84, he contacted Washington police and offered to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology in the ongoing hunt for, the, for his successor in Washington, the Green River Killer. So he was trying to pull a Hannibal Lecter type of thing. Well, what's so fascinating is that back to the rape thing, this again goes back to he's not the narcissist in that like me, me, me. He's all about whatever narcissism he deems as being respectable. It's like he'd never confessed to being gang raped. 
Ever. No. That could never happen to him, but it did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he never confessed to a, to a murder of somebody that, you know, who knows who he killed before 1974, but it was either sloppy or it was a little kid. It was kid not up to Or it was an elderly woman. Yeah. It was something that... It wasn't some hot girl that he would have liked to have sex well, with. Or a challenge. Or yeah. just like, it, it was probably just so... It probably repulsed him because yeah. it was so outside of his yeah. standards because mm-hmm. he probably held himself to this... High regard. Ridiculous code of whatever code he had. Yeah. But- so he tries to... He's like, all right, I'm going to be Hannibal Lecter before Hannibal Lecter. He's like, I'm going to meet with the... So he actually meets with the Green River Task Force. And the detectives, and they interview him at length to try and get into his head to try and figure out who's killing these these people. Uh, but the Green River Killer, who was later identified as Gary Ridgway, he remains at large for another 17 years. He didn't help at all. Woof. Didn't help. And Gary Ridgway, man, that's another, oh, yeah, that's another one. Sad, sad case. So then in early 1986, an ex- execution date of March 4th was set on the Chai Omega convictions. The Supreme Court initiated a brief stay, but the execution was quickly rescheduled in April, shortly after the new date of July 2nd was announced. It's at this time that Bundy finally confessed to FBI agents what they believed to be the full range of his depredations, including details of what he did to some of the victims after their deaths. Because this was not common knowledge to them yet. Mm-hmm. They didn't know of his necrophilia yeah. uh, proclivities. So that included details of what he did to some of his victims after their deaths. He told them that he revisited secondary crime scenes often several times to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their decomposing bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. In some cases, he drove for several hours each way and remained the entire night with his decomposing victim. In Utah, he applied makeup to the lifeless face of one victim, and he repeatedly washed the hair of another victim's corpse. And he said of this, if you've got time, they can be anything you want them to be. Mm -mm. He then decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and kept at least one group of severed heads in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of them. So as his July 2nd execution approached, less than 15 hours before the scheduled execution was happening, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stated indefinitely and remanded the Chai Omega case for review on multiple technicalities, but a firm execution date of January 24th, 1989 was finally announced. And although it seems like a lot of back and forth, his journey through the appeals court was actually pretty rapid for a capital murder case. It moved pretty quick. They never really employed any real big delaying tactics. And then when all was said and done, he finally agrees to speak frankly with the investigators about his crimes. So he confesses they committed all eight of the Washington and Oregon homicides for which he was the prime suspect. He described three additional previously unknown victims in Washington and two in Oregon whom he declined to identify. He said he left a fifth corpse, Donna Manson's, on Taylor Mountain, but incinerated her head in the fireplace of his girlfriend Elizabeth's home. Ted Bundy later said, Of all the things I did to Elizabeth, this is probably the one she is least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz. So Bundy's recounting all of his sins, and those who interviewed him said that he was describing the lakeside 
crime scene and it was almost like he was just there like he was seeing everything he was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there he's just totally consumed with murder all the time and that was probably one of his most thrilling crime scenes that's the one where he had the two victims Mm -hmm. he made them watch each other and he was just like playing God, like yeah. ultimate control. So I'm sure when he's being asked about these crime scenes, he's probably getting giddy talking about it. He's probably really vividly recalling how, what that was like. And that probably was really disturbing for those. And was... probably like can't even hide his excitement, exactly. has to, which has to be the most traumatic thing to watch. So another person said that it was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me. His manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments, which is chilling. So he confessed to detectives from Idaho, Utah, and Colorado that he had committed numerous additional homicides, including several that were unknown to the police as of then. He explained that when he was in Utah, he could bring back his victims to his apartment where he could reenact scenarios depicted on the covers of detective magazines, which is what Billy was talking about earlier. Yeah. Which were crime porn, but who I didn't realize that's what that was. What a strange thing. You think that would be something people would be into now? Not then. Well, that was the interesting thing about them is because when you go back and you look at those detective crime magazines, they are very much like, they're not like newspaper articles because they have all the red herrings in them and Mm -hmm. they have the, the wrong turns that the detectives made and then the right turns that they eventually do make. So they're not like looking at the newspaper articles. They're very much like ID discovery and oxygen. Uh, But they had these graphic images of these women, particularly, you know, they were drawings first, but then it turned out that they were, they were and by the eighties and the seventies and eighties, they were just photographs of, these women in awful situations. Like bondage type shit. Like yeah. actual, pages. like real photographs mm-hmm. of like real crime scenes? No, not real crime scenes. They're, they're, they're on stage. They're oh, okay. reenacted, yeah. So Weird. strange. I don't like that. But anyways, back to Bundy. So see these things that he's confessing, these very embarrassing things, like his necrophilia, things he probably wouldn't have been forthcoming about. You can see that he's starting to feel a little desperate. His execution date is inching closer Mm -hmm. and this is why he decides to reveal these things because this is the equivalent of like him getting raped in prison it's not something he'd be forthcoming about because it's not dignified yeah so but you can really see though as his uh execution date comes he's getting a little more desperate he's willing to be a little less dignified and appear a little strange (laughs) in order to preserve his life so this is the first time that he we see him sacrificing some his narcissism is coming ben- beneath his self Because he can probably actually feel like death looming on him. Exactly. And, you know, but this strategy was pretty obvious to people. They were like, we see what you're doing. I'm sure at the time they didn't know if it was all true because it was pretty not discreet. And he teased that there are other buried remains in Colorado, but he would refuse to elaborate. And the lawyers and all of the legal team and police officers involved in these kind of tidbits he was throwing started to call his strategy Ted's Bones for Time scheme. And it really served just to deepen the resolve of authorities to see Bundy executed on schedule. Like they weren't going to succumb to his games. Mm -hmm. And when they would investigate his claims, little to nothing would be found. And in the cases where he did give details... They it it brought nothing, so he was really just dragging this out, and they were just getting their fuse was shortening. Right, 
And when it became clear that no further stays would be forthcoming from the courts, Bundy's supporters started lobbying for the only remaining option, executive clemency from the Florida governor. So meanwhile, uh, Caroline Boone gives birth, birth to a daughter named Rose and says that Bundy is the father. And uh, one rumor is that Bundy impregnated his wife during a frantic tryst behind a vending machine in the visiting room. Another especially salacious story reports that Carol Boone uh, was passed a condom to her husband via a kiss, and then Bundy filled the condom with the necessary genetic material, then passed it back to his wife, et cetera, et cetera. But before we get too far into the relationship with his wife, this is a good opportunity to talk about the many relationships Bundy was having having on death row, where he was really the first killer to have a fan base. He had a fan club. He had a fan he had club. Groupies. And he was married and he was seducing members of his legal team. And this guy had the most complicated, you know, relationships with people. It's the mind truly boggles. But this whole thing with this wife and this child was going on as he was having all these other people, women approaching him about having a relationship. I'm just like, does it, do you really? need to have a kid by him that bad so you can actually see pictures of carol rose and ted bundy in jail mm-hmm. like as a happy family they take they took a lot of pictures and she visited him a ton while he was on death row they, it's crazy they how odd portrayed themselves as this happy little family it's bizarro world that is bizarro world especially i mean he, to see him in that row role the fact that he had a daughter the irony it's just crazy town yeah. It's, I wonder if he killed any men. I bet he did in his sloppy times. Well, right. that, that's what I was thinking, is that he might have had one murder that it was a man and he didn't like that. So that's mm-hmm. why yeah. he's saying it. So. Interesting. Didn't get any like sexual gratification out mm-hmm. of it or something. Totally. What a freak. Okay. So it's during this time that Mr. Ted Bundy, father of the year, you know, he has a great family. He's doing good. And he starts working with a young Florida attorney named Diana Weiner. And surprise, surprise, they end up having a romantic relationship or at least a sexual one. She was this young Florida attorney and ended up being his last uh, love interest prior to his execution. So in addition to having a relationship with him, she was asking families of several Colorado and Utah victims to petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez for a postponement to give Bundy time to reveal more information because she wanted to keep him alive longer so she could bang him. Everybody ended up refusing. And then while this was all happening, eventually Carol Ann Boone finds out that Bundy's relationship, finds out about his relationship with Diana. And then this is, you know, this is what pisses her off out of all of the things. Infidelity. Infidelity. Pisses her off so much, she stops bringing her daughter to go visit him and refuses to take his calls. So that is the end of their relationship. Well, right. And it was also at this time where she, he was offering up confessions Mm -hmm. and more information. And she proclaimed to believe he was innocent the entire time he was proclaiming innocence. So when he started confessing, she was like, I can't be with a confessed murderer. I think in the back of her head and her subconscious, she's like, he's denying it. I can, I can believe he's innocent. But as soon as he wasn't innocent, quote unquote anymore, she was unable, especially with a child. I think your brain changes into, um, she she also with serial killer. Right. But she also said that the whole thing was becoming 
uh, a really sour, bad environment for Rose. And she, I think she started to come to her senses with the confessions. And then this guy on death row is cheating on me. Like I'm the catch here. (laughs) And I think it all came to a head. And I read also that he called her on the day of his execution and she did not answer or take his call after multiple attempts. Woof, woof, woof. Yeah. And you know, this is when she had been living in Florida near the the jail so she could see him regularly. And this is also the, the same time that she moved back to Washington with Rose and kind of disappeared. They disappeared off the map at this time. And this is also the same time that Bundy started blaming pornography mm-hmm. for his sexual depravity. And in a final interview conducted by a California psychologist and radio evangelist, James Dobson, Bundy tearfully cited the media as a source of his dementia, perhaps playing to his inquisitor, a member of the 1986 Federal Pornography Commission. Bundy said, those of us who are so much influenced by violence in the media, in particular pornographic violence, are not some kind of inherent monsters. We are your sons. We are your husbands. And we grew up in regular families. So this is where the sex is violent line from the Ted Just Admitted song by Jane's Addiction comes from. Oh. Yeah. And he, you know, they wrote that song. I think that song came out in 88. I don't know when they wrote it, but uh, it's a great song and they actually have, we can't play it here because of copyright laws, but go listen to it. That would be one of the soundtracks to this because they have actually uh, snippets of interviews with him uh, inside the song. So it came out in 1988 when you were 69 years old. (laughs) When I was, was was I in 88? I was 15. You were 1,500. I was 15 years old. I was a goth kid, and uh, uh, I love Jane's Addiction. Yeah, so, no, and it's one of the, you know, we'll do a serial killer um, song uh, show at some point. Me and Jack will have we to will. play us our song. Oh, God. Yeah, but it... it uh, Are there other songs about serial killers? There's a ton of songs about serial killers. Like Nebra- what else? Nebraska, by, well, he was a spree killer, but Nebraska by uh, Bruce Springsteen, that's one. Oh, yeah. okay. So there's two. Yeah. I, I've actually I have a a, um, a, a serial killer playlist. A playlist that I can I can send you. That's okay. All right, but yeah. So um, and this guy was all over everything about pop pop culture, and which is leading up to his the the eve of his execution. The idea that I would ever have wound up. Uh, covering a story of that magnitude never would have penetrated my noggin back in 1989. And it was an Aristotelian confluence of circumstances that led me uh, to that place. It, it, it was an odd situation because I was not expecting the assignment. I didn't know it was coming down uh, in Florida. Uh, and, and this holds true to, uh, through this day. Uh, the Florida uh, Department of Law Enforcement and the Corrections Division has an agreement with the Florida Press Club. Whenever there is an execution, the Florida Press Club chooses three news organizations out of a hat. And then those news organizations choose the person that they're going to send. So when Bundy's uh, execution came up, uh, the Lake City Reporter uh, was a newspaper that was chosen automatically because he was being executed for the murder of a Lake City girl, which left two other spots. Uh, the print journalist who was chosen was a gentleman named John Wilson, who was a veteran anchor. He was in his 40s, and he had already been in the business 20 years. Uh, 
and uh, John, uh, people around the country don't know who John Wilson is because he was a Tampa Bay figure. Don't know his son Patrick because Patrick is playing the villain in Aquaman, which opens in theaters next week. Uh, so that, that's basically how I wound up going uh, there. It was not. It was a like I said, an Aristotelian confluence of circumstances. There was just no way to predict all those dominoes would have fallen the way they fell. The the morning of the execution uh, actually started the night before. Uh, there's a, a story that, that that I have to tell uh, because the the night before I was in the lobby trying to send uh, one of the uh, stories that I was writing. I wrote seven stories while I was there, and several of them were before the execution. What the town was like, what was going on, uh, you know, the, the the mass media migration uh, to Stark, Florida, and so forth. And while I was in the lobby, there was a there was a tall gentleman uh, at the front desk arguing with the hotel manager because he had booked a room and he was there for the execution and he didn't have a place to stay. And I don't know what possessed me. Uh, I had uh, the manager's suite at the, the Econo Lodge. There are only two hotels, the Econo Lodge and the Days Inn back then. And I had the manager's suite because I had a friend of a friend who hooked me up. So I had a whole other bedroom with its own bathroom attached to my room. So I went up to this gentleman and I offered him the other room that we had in the uh, in the suite, and he accepted. But he was one of the detectives from FSU who arrested Ted Bundy. So around 10 o'clock the night before, he walked in the hotel room with a bottle of Jack Daniels. And he put the bottle on the table, took two plastic cups off the, the credenza, and he basically started telling me things that had never, ever, ever been in the media about the investigation. So that kept me up pretty much all night. I got about an hour's worth of sleep, and around 5.30 a.m. I got up and got myself ready. There was a, a football field size, maybe two football fields uh, 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 in terms of size, across from Stark Prison, where all of the media were camped out. It was just a sea of satellite trucks uh, from every country uh, uh, in the world. There was Japan, there was Australia, New Zealand. This was an international story. And we parked our cars off to the side of, uh, of that section, and then a white van came, was going to come and pick us up at 6.30. So we got in the van, we went over there. Uh, and they walked us through the main gate of the prison. And it was just a series of locked doors, uh, you know, a lot of clanking. The, the, the walls, as you might imagine, were that, uh, that institutional pea green. And everything smelled, uh, I think the, the word I used in one of the articles was sanitized filth. Uh, you could smell the, the, the sweat of, uh, of the inmates just underneath this ammonia smell of whatever industrial cleaner they used in the hallway. Uh, and as far as where my head was, I was so in over my head. I had never been to a story of this magnitude. I had a yellow uh, uh, legal pad. They wouldn't let us uh, in with reporter's notebooks. They gave us legal pads and pencils uh, in, uh, once we got in the gate. They wouldn't let us bring anything inside the prison whatsoever outside of uh, our cartons. 
Uh, and uh, so I'm sitting there with this yellow legal pad and a pencil, and I'm just trying to absorb as much as I could. What was I smelling? What was uh, what was I seeing? What was the color on the wall? Uh, how was the the place lit? And they walked us uh, the, the the media reps. There were only the you know the four of us, and we thought we were just going to be sitting in a you know in a vacant room uh, you know uh, across through the window, uh, uh, watching uh, uh, the execution through the window. And when we walked in the room, there was hardly any place left to sit. There were at least 50, maybe even 60 people in the room. Almost all of them law enforcement. A couple of family members from uh, from uh, victims. We were told not to address anyone, not to say hello to anyone, not to make a sound. We were to walk in, watch silently, and walk out. You would imagine it would be silent, just because of uh, of the the, the, the occasion uh, of what was about to happen. But there's something different that happens to human beings when you tell them they must be silent. So when I walked in, I, I heard a lot of indistinct whispering in the back and, uh, and uh, law enforcement officers uh, talking to each other. And I even heard a, a chuckle or two in the back. From the, the law enforcement folks that I saw, these were people who were not coming for a somber event. This was their Super Bowl. These are men and women who had hunted this man for years and who had followed the 14 years that he was on death row uh, very, very closely. These were people who wanted this man to die, but they didn't just want him to die. They wanted to watch it. They despised this man in ways that, that I could not, at age 23, could not have even imagined. And I turned 53 yesterday. And I'm not sure I can imagine it even today, but I cannot imagine what was what they were feeling in their bellies uh, uh, that day. But uh, there is certainly a sense of anticipation and maybe even a bit of joy. Through my palpable panic, I could still feel it. Okay, so I know this is a lot of Bundy and it gets very, very overwhelming. So we're going to take a little bit of a break because we got an amazing opportunity to interview James Patterson, which you guys might know a little bit about, but I'm going to let Billy kind of intro it. And we had a fun little segment with him. We did. Yeah, He's J- great. James Patterson, his, you know what's crazy about James Patterson? His novels account for 6% of all hardcover novels sold in the United States. What? This one guy. Insane. Holy shit. He sells more copies than Stephen King, John Grisham, and Dan Brown combined. And he sold 305 million copies worldwide. So he really is the king of He's crime. the king of books. He's the king of books. He wrote a crime fiction book with President Clinton, too, called The President is Missing. Yep. And what? He, just, he just did a nonfiction book on the Aaron Hernandez case. Mm. But he was talking to us about his new fiction novel that he wrote with Candace Fox called Liar Liar. But I was super stoked. I was super fangirling. Not an embarrassing way. I did embarrass myself, but oh to talk to him. Because he's, you know, a renowned writer. He's like a writer. god. Exactly. Yeah, literary god. So you guys are going to hear a little bit of that in this episode and our next episode too. So here we go. I was reading a little bit about you and I understand you used to work in advertising. So I'm curious as to what drew you to the world of mystery and crime? Well, I was in advertising, but, but I've been clean for over 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
I, I think what drew me was, you know, I was a literary snob. I was a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt, and at a, you know, somewhere in there, I, I didn't read commercial fiction at all, but uh, suddenly I, I read, in the course of a few months, I think, um, Day of the Jackal and The Exorcist. And um, I was coming to grips with the fact that I I didn't I couldn't do a book I felt you know, as good as a hundred years of solitude or real serious fiction. I thought I could maybe do that kind of middle fiction that gets decent reviews, but I didn't really want to do that. And I read those two books and I went, hmm, I really like these. I had been you know I, I hadn't been paying any attention to the, to these genres, and maybe I can do something like this. So that's kind of what got me in. And then I while I was down there, I started the first novel, the Thomas Berryman number, which was turned down by 31 publishers that then won an Edgar as the best first mystery. So go figure. That's always how it is, especially with you. I'm sure they regret it. Yeah, well, I, you know, whatever it was. I still, sometimes I'll get, uh, um, you know, books from some of the uh, editors who rejected me, and but most of them are dead, but, you know, they are. <laughs> Our podcast concept is every episode we have someone on who's one degree of separation away from a crime. Do you yeah. have, Do you have any crimes or... Well, obviously, uh, you know, I've been very involved in the Epstein thing down here for Filthy Rich. I uh, was aware of him, was aware of that case, watched the case. You know, his house is about, you know, two blocks away down here. Um, I'm still involved because Netflix is involved in doing a four-part um, documentary now. So we just, you know, with the camera crew went down and visited his house and I stood in the outside the gates yelling, Jeffrey, I'm here. Jimmy wants to talk to you again. <laughs> I don't think he's down here, though. So that one, obviously. And then the Aaron Hernandez, I was very involved in terms of tracking down, you know, doing various interviews. And then eventually I did the um, 48 hours and I went up and interviewed a lot of the people involved with that case. Beyond that, you know, I uh, took a car for a joyride when I was 16. And that's about it for, I think, crime stories. <laughs> to Liar Liar, tell me about the Harriet Blue series as a whole uh, for anyone who may not be familiar. Harriet Blue is a detective in Australia. She's um, she's kind of I mean I don't want to say this exactly, but she has similarities to Reacher in in the sense that she's very bright. She, she's very imaginative in terms of the way she solves things. She's kind of relentless, and she's very physically and mentally tough. I just like the idea of writing a a, a woman character that is unusually tough and caustic and interesting to me and um, you know Candace Fox who I co-write it with um, is, is from Australia and she's tough too <laughs> so it's uh, it's kind of cool would you liken Harriet Blue was she inspired well, by anybody? Well as I said I, I think there I, not that there's you know any kind of one-to-one -one connection but I, I I do think a little bit about Reacher she's tougher than Alex Cross She's a relentless and obsessive, and Alex is obsessive, but uh, I think Alex is a little more balanced than Harriet. Uh, you know, people are, are pretty obsessive about reading about Harriet Blue once they start the series. I don't think she's inspired by anyone, uh, not fictional or, or in the real world. What happened with the character originally is um, Candace Fox and I had the same publisher in, in England and, and in Australia, and uh, we met through them, and um, she had the idea for this book series. Um, but it was it was a character named Harry Blue, 
And um, we talked a lot, and I sort of suggested I think it would be really good if Harry was a woman because that would make it even more unusual. And, uh, you know, I've read about a lot of sort of tough guy detectives, but I wasn't as familiar with, with a woman kind of operating the way Harriet has. And so that appealed to me, and it appealed to uh, Candace as well. So that's how that happened. Interestingly, uh, when I first started writing Alex Cross, the first book for the first 50 or 60 pages it was uh, Alex was a woman Alexis oh um, look at that I, uh, yeah, yeah yeah and I decided to make Alexis a man and I oh, I didn't decide but I suggested that we make Harry uh, a woman in Harriet Blue If that didn't make you guys want to pick up one of his books, I don't know what is going to. Yeah, I ordered like five of them after I talked to him. Well, I, I love have, him. I have mine in my car right now. I'm probably right. going to read it when I get home. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, 
resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. All right, let's get back to Ted Bundy. Let's talk about the media circus surrounding this execution because it was one of the largest media spectacles that I think our country had ever seen. Yeah. Um, News channels were fighting for rights stories and how the Department of Corrections in Florida picked which media outlets would um, cover this case. They have a way of doing it and it remains this way to this day. So it's just the most fascinating kind of media phenomenon that I've seen in a case like this. So there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about his execution. One of them is that smoke started coming out of him. Uh, He started shaking. Um, We're going to get the real story behind that. One of the interesting things, and it's an image that if you watch it, because he's been the subject of many movies, is going to be a subject of a new movie with Zac Efron. But before the Zac Efron movie, he was actually played by Mark Harmon, who was on NCIS, good-looking guy. And there is actually a scene right before the execution where he, you know, when you're executed, when, when you die, you relieve yourself. Hmm. Yeah. What they do in executions, apparently. In, in electrocutions, I know. Wait, no, I don't. Okay. Did you put a diaper on you? Oh no! Way you, worse. you would. You wish. give you an enema you before. Wish. Oh, way no. worse. Do they stick something up your butt? Yeah. Yes. So why they, to they, stop you from pooping? Yeah. Yeah. So they don't have to clean anything up. So there's a scene, and I think they, I think the filmmakers did it. I think the filmmakers did it just to embarrass him in in the post post life post mortem mm-hmm. embarrassing, which is kind of interesting because you always hear so much about glorifying serial killers or whatever. There's a scene of him. Shoving bent cotton. over and they're shoving cotton in his, in his ass. Oh my and, god! And, the and guy's he's like, like, "It's like a rape scene, almost." Yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it is. And yeah. then the guy, the guy's like, "There's one guy doing it, and one guy directing him to do it." And he's like, "No, do another one. Like, do another oh. one." I've seen this movie. And what I didn't, movie is this? It's the original Bundy scripted movie, and that movie also gets into. I've never seen written um, accounts of this, but gets into his strange pseudo like his sadist sex practices with his girlfriends Mm. where they were he was ordering them tying them up ordering them to play dead i haven't seen any real uh literature on that so Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna like include that but in the in the movie that was a narrative that they really played up yeah and I, i bring it up just because that we've been talking so much about him trying to control the narrative of what he is like and eliminating some of the bad stuff that he might have done bad stuff in his head yeah not trying to not confessing not doing all of this and the whoever did this movie decided to show him in the in you know such this vulnerable position mm-hmm. and i kind of like that they did that in a sense because it was completely taking any power away from him okay we just spent two hours with a a, a movie star in Mark Harmon playing you, but we're going to completely take every anything cool about you yeah. as you're getting cotton shoved up your ass. Jesus. Because you're going to shit yourself because we're going to kill you. Yeah. We were in the room less than a half an hour total, but it felt like about three hours because each minute 
ticked by uh, as if the, the, the second hand on the clock was in slow motion. And there was a clock on the wall uh, and it had a second hand and it ticked very loud. You could hear it. Uh, if I was a, 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 if I was pitching this as a screenplay uh, to a film studio, the sound of that ticking clock would have been the only sound in that entire scene. Uh, so that 15 minutes felt like uh, a couple of hours. Then at around, just a few minutes after seven, they brought in uh, Bundy. And uh, he was manacled, uh, both his hands and his, and his uh, ankles, and uh, connected by the cross chain, uh, his uh, wrist manacles to his ankle manacles. And the guards who escorted him did, well, they, they didn't quite escort him in. They practically carried him in. If his feet were touching the ground, I, which I couldn't see, I would have been surprised. Uh, it, 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 it felt like they were literally carrying him in by his arms. Uh, you could barely see his legs move at all. And he was bald which I knew was going to be the case because they, they shave uh, the, the inmate's head uh, before the execution. But it was still a bit of a jarring sight and I was expecting to see uh, a prison you know, garb, some kind of jumpsuit or what have you. And he was just in uh, uh, what looked like a, a, a standard blue button-down shirt uh, with, uh, with, with uh, denim-style uh, pants. Uh, one of the things that happened when he first walked in the room uh, which of course was separated from our room by a window, uh, was he saw his attorney sitting in the front row. And he looked at his attorney and he couldn't point to him, but he nodded to him and, and halfway smiled uh, to say hello, basically. And the look on his face was the, was the narcissist. This was not uh, 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 an inmate scared or sad about his fate. At first, all he was doing was acknowledging an attorney as if he himself was an attorney. And of course, we remember from the Miami trial, he defended himself. And even the judge remarked, you would have made a fine attorney, son. So he nodded to the attorney with that, with that air of a colleague nodding to a colleague. Uh, and, and that was the, the first thing I noticed. And then he looked out over the rest of the people who were in the room and he, he noticed that there were many faces he probably, he didn't know, but he could tell that they were almost all law enforcement. And that's when his face sunk a little bit. In one of the stories, I, I used the phrase that his eyes were marbles of emptiness. And it's, and it's really, how I how I saw it at that moment in time, uh, because I think that the look on his face was, was basically uh, incredulous. Because and and I have a theory about this that, that, that's buttressed by some of the interviews that I've done uh, over the years. Uh, he never believed that he would be executed. I don't think. I don't think he ever thought that they would actually do what they said they were going to do. He gave a lot of interviews to law enforcement uh, those last uh, that last week or so, leading up to the execution. And uh, and there there are some of us involved in the case who believe that he was trying to leverage his knowledge of cold cases to not only extend his life but perhaps 
find a role for him where they wouldn't they wouldn't kill him because the information he had about all these other hundreds of cases was far too valuable. So the look on his face was, oh my God, they're actually going to do it. It was almost like he was watching uh, a show based on his life, only he was on the other side of the camera. And when they started strapping him in, his expression started to change. He started to, the, 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 the stark reality of what was about to happen started to hit him. And you could tell he was trying not to panic, trying not to show any emotion because he knew that that would be, that would be satisfying for the law enforcement people there. And he always saw himself as above them. He was better than them. He wasn't a cop, he was an attorney. He defended himself and, and, and he was the showman. Uh, so he didn't want to, he didn't want them to see his, his panic, but it leaked out a little bit before they, they put the veil over his eyes. Oof. It's crazy. And um, another thing that we heard Tony talk about was he said that he walked into the execution chamber and his body language was really arrogant. And he said he had that strange, attor- like a, a disposition like an attorney mm-hmm. and that he like nodded as a, at his attorneys. And then when he realized how much law enforcement was there, his his energy changed and he his face kind of sunk. And Tony said he was like, you know, he always thought he was better than law enforcement. He's an attorney like he's this refined person. And it, it was very much like reminiscent of like a Roman Coliseum. It was all like these law enforcement who were excited. They wanted blood. They were excited mm-hmm. to see him die. And I just can't imagine the um, like palpable nature of, of being in that room. They, in a lot of uh, films and television shows, they show them putting a hood over the head once the, 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 the cranial plate is in place. That's not uh, the, the way it actually worked back then. They attached a veil, a black veil, across the head plate. So you could see the head plate. And the veil simply covered his face. Uh, and after the, his face was covered and he was strapped in, the executioner, all, the executioner did wear a hood. And one of the things uh, that, that John has told me uh, many times over the years uh, uh, is that when he, he got a bit of a closer look at the executioner when he first walked in because he thought his seat was in the front row and he kind of came around. And through the eye slits of, of, the, of the hood, he swears he saw mascara. So uh, John believes that the executioner was female. Wow. I'd never heard that before. I know. I wonder if that's anywhere like online or anything. I don't, I've never seen it. Wow. Wouldn't that be ironic at the end of the day? Well, poetic justice in a lot of ways. The warden uh, 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 goes outside the room and makes a phone call to the governor, who back then was Governor Bob Martinez. And makes a call to the governor to make sure that there isn't any last minute parts. Came back about 30 seconds later, uh, and uh, uh, he, he whispered something to one of the guards, who then walked over to the executioner, and uh, I think it was around 7.06 or 7.07, uh, 
when they, they pulled the crank. When they pulled the lever, his fists clenched and his body tensed up. There was no smoke. There was no visible signs of, of heat. He didn't vibrate. Again, movies and television play the game of, you know, trying to make things more dramatic. It was actually a more, I don't know. It wasn't as violent as I thought it would be. And when uh, the uh, circuit was released, the electricity that's used for the electric chair is from a separate generator. Because state law prohibits the public utility for being used in execution. Because it's a public utility. So an individual generator that powered our room and the uh, the execution room uh, where the electric chair was, uh, the lights flickered in our room because of the, uh, of the circuit being completed. And then when the switch went back up, the lights stopped uh, flickering, uh, and uh, his his body released the tension. Well, this is the the irony of the veil because uh, after he relaxed. They didn't touch the body for several minutes because one of the first things they have to do is they have to ascertain, is he actually dead? Uh, they couldn't touch his body because the, uh, the, the, the electricity increases the body temperature to the point where if you attempted to take his pulse or use the stethoscope for the heartbeat, it would have burned. It literally would have burned your hand. That's how hot his skin was. So they didn't touch his skin, they didn't check his pulse, they didn't use the stethoscope to check his heart. What they did, however, do was they removed the veil. So everyone in the room could see his eyes. Which makes me wonder why even put the veil up in the first darn place, <laughs> if you're going to do that. And they checked the dilation of his pupils. And that was the, the, the initial indication that they didn't need to, to hit it again, because they would have. They would have hit it as many times as they needed to, to, to kill him. And then after a few minutes, when the body cooled down, then they were able to check pulse and stethoscope and call time to death. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They put a veil on him. Mm -hmm. 
while they pull the switch, flip the switch, and the electricity like courses through his body. And then they take the veil off, and everybody in the room saw his dead face. Yeah. Eyes open. Well, I think you have to do that to prove that it was really him. Oh. No, but he was walked out, uh, not veiled. So they walked him out. Veiled him. Killed him. him. Took the veil off. Why would they take the veil off? The movie's dead? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, I mean, they took his vitals. We didn't make a switch, you know, at the end. That kind of thing. I mean, everyone was watching the whole time. Doesn't matter. I mean, you know. But they could do a fake. They could fake it. Have you ever been to Vegas? How could they fake it? I mean, what if it's an inside job? I I don't know if this has ever happened before, but like, seems like something. No, in a I don't movie. think that's why they did and it. Also, they want to. I think it's it's proof of all right, he's dead. That's, I don't think that's why you do no, that. No, I mean Tony didn't describe it like that. In my opinion, he said more like, "Why the? F- it was ne- a negligent move." And after they called time of death, then we left. They were escorted out. We went back to the van. They delivered us to the opposite side of the field, so the only four witnesses to the event who could speak to the media, who were also media representatives themselves, had to run the gauntlet of about three or four dozen different news agencies that were clamoring to get that first interview. Coincidentally, John Wilson was there to do his stand-up, and uh, the, the Channel 10 uh, in the uh, uh, Tampa Bay at that time was an ABC affiliate, so he asked me if if he if he could interview me for his first interview. And John had kind of taken me under his wing a little bit uh, while we were down there because he could see that I was really out of my league and 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 a, a bit of a deer in the headlights. So he did what he could to make me feel comfortable, uh, and. Even after the event was over, he checked on me uh, a couple of weeks after, uh, and we maintained a friendship over the years. And now we work together at the same uh, consulting firm. So I really needed a couple of days downtime before I I processed what was going on. Uh, At the moment that it happened, it didn't disturb me because I wasn't there as a witness for my own edification. And I wasn't there as a witness out of my own curiosity. I was there to be eyes and ears for the readers because death penalty cases, uh, legislation about the death penalty, the constitutionality of it and so forth, a lot of the debate stems from the actual execution. And they knew that a lot was going to be written about executions afterward and they wanted me focused on, again, absorbing everything. What did I see? What did I hear? Uh, uh, what were the colors, what were the smells, uh, what were the people's reactions, what were his reactions. I was just, I was staring through the window to take in as much as I could and processing it like a computer and writing in my notepad without looking at it. I was just jotting as many notes as I could. So at the moment, I wasn't thinking at all about it. It actually started having an impact on my viewpoint before I even left for the execution. Uh, I wanted to do a story about the ramp up. You know what? What? You know what, what's the last? You know, forty-eight hours of uh, condemned man like. Uh, uh, what would he be doing? What would be his schedule? What would he be eating? Those kinds of things. Kind of walk my readers through. You know, the preamble to the event. 
And uh, so I uh, uh, called up Bob McMasters, who was the, uh, the, the PIO for the corrections uh, uh, department at the time. And he said, oh, well, we have a full schedule. We'll send it to you. Uh, back then, of course, there's no email. So a few days later, I received a package in the mail at the newsroom. And I was expecting a letter. You know, I was expecting, you know, a piece of paper with the schedule. It was a box. And it had a giant three-ring binder in it, about three inches thick. Every minute of the last week was accounted for in statute. It, it started to sink in what we had just witnessed, what we had seen, and, and everything around it just fell off. And then it hit me. The law was so precise as if the lawyers and the legislative aides that were writing the regulations for the death penalty statute were trying to figure out the right way to put a man to death. The right way, the best way for the state to kill someone. And that's when I came to the conclusion that there is no right way. If it's wrong for me to kill someone, uh, and when you go to, when you look at the court cases, uh, criminal cases, it's the state versus or the people versus the defendant, because the state is the people. And if I'm part of the state, I'm one of the people. Why is it not okay for me to kill someone, but it's okay for us collectively to do it? There has to be uh, a better way. So obviously, Tony's experience is one that cannot be measured. It was a historical event. We haven't had a serial killer as depraved since Ted Bundy, and we haven't had an execution that was as much as a media spectacle since then as well. But he was ultimately killed, as we know, on January 24th, 1989, which was 30 years ago to the day on the 24th. And this is part three, so we're obviously a few weeks past that now. But regardless of that, 30 years, 20 years, 50 years, I do think his narrative will live on because mm -hmm. you see very few of these in, in a lifespan. I mean, he is a very unique killer. He's one of the most evil, depraved individuals I've ever even discussed. And I don't think this topic will ever get old for people in that we have a ton to learn from from him. I, I grew up in a household. My father was a Reagan Republican. Uh, loved Ronald Reagan, who uh, was a lifelong Republican. And so the death penalty for me was just a fact of life because uh, I had never, you know, I, I lived in Florida from the time I was about 10 years old. I'd always lived in a state where the death penalty was, was a fact of life, and I read about executions all the time. So it was just, oh, well, that's the law. That's the way it is. And I never thought much about it until I went there. And I saw, I saw the impact. And I saw the, 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 the family members in the room. And I saw the, the LEOs in the room. They wanted this man's blood. And I completely understood it. But it's probably why it's a good idea that law enforcement officers and victims' families don't have legal rights when it comes to determining the sentence for convicted killers. Because revenge 
probably shouldn't be a part of uh, a body of law in a country that, that, that you know, is based on the rule of law. And when you look at the law without passion, when you look at it without the context of what these people went through and, and, and the, the absolute abject evil that Ted Bundy represented, um, it, it's, it's almost impossible to come to the conclusion that it's okay to take someone's life, even in extreme cases as, as Ted Bundy. Um, since those days, I've done a lot of research and discovered that it is actually less expensive, vastly less expensive, uh, to sentence someone to life in prison without the opportunity for parole than it is to put them to death. Because the legal system that they have, the, the one thing about the death penalty that you cannot do with any other penalty is you can't undo it. Yeah, and there's a lot of serial killer killers out there, and I said this in the first episode, that once you do find them, all their mystique is taken away and it's stripped away. And then you just get this pathetic little mm-hmm. warm loser. But that didn't happen with him. His mystique, in fact, got bigger because yeah. he escaped twice and then murdered again after he escaped. He he was very articulate in court. Uh, he did everything that that every all the other guys like Rifkin and D'Angelo and and BTK didn't do. Uh, so uh, he's going to continue to be that guy that everybody points to as the the brilliant, you know, charismatic serial killer that every you know fiction book has. Yeah. Well, he's the boogeyman just, you know, because as boogeyman. as woman, I've dated a few guys. Yep. Oh, he's great on paper. Sure, I'll go out with you. Don't yeah. mention my friends. He really where I'm going. is. The, you wouldn't be scared to go up to. He's on the boogeyman. If he was trying to, if he knocked on my door to sell me something, I wouldn't slam it in his face immediately. I'd be like, "All right, I don't want to be mean to him. He's not a. It's just the. He's not creepy. The person you put your guard down to. Yeah, and you know he's got the the kid from High School Musical playing him in a movie that's coming out. <laughs> Literally you know, like so. beautiful America's man. sweetheart. Yeah, like Zac Efron. Like that says a lot about mm-hmm. how his character like was portrayed. Right, and. In a hundred parts, we couldn't cover everything about Ted Bundy because the the depth of his series is just there's a, a million things we don't know and no one knows about him. Mm-hmm. So forgive us if there's any missing information, but there was just too there's much to cover. It should have its own weekly podcast. I know somebody should make a Ted Bundy because podcast. he could. I mean, you could go on forever with this guy. Yeah. So we did our best. It's a very, as Jack said earlier, robust case mm-hmm. and. Actually, if you know something we don't know, please let us know. Absolutely. Let us know. Um, until next week, please follow us on Instagram and the socials at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Write us if you have a story that you are one degree away from at the first degree podcast.com or just slide into any of our DMs and rate and review us on iTunes, please. Nice reviews only. And, uh, Right? Keep your friends close, but not that close. And also, if your partner sleeps with socks on, they might be a serial killer. No socks. That was Ted Bundy was obsessed with socks. I forgot to say that, or did I say that? You said it. He had like a different pair of socks for every day of the year. Yeah, that's a weird thing to do. Yeah, that is strange. If somebody you're dating is doing that, report them to the FBI. Mm -hmm. They're killing people on the side. Over and out. Ta ta. Thank you for tuning in to The First Degree. Check out new episodes every Wednesday at podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, 
and Apple Podcasts. This episode quotes extensively from Dr. No's Guide to Serial Killers, the best of the worst, all things interesting, and sources like the Crime Mag, Psychology Today, and Thought Catalog. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.